Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Plains on the Prairie podcast. I'm Max. And I'm Sam. And today we are going to be kicking off um, episode one of a new series that we're going to have uh, called North Dakota Aces. Yeah, so we'll have nine aces for you spread out, not necessarily every week, but for the next two weeks here, we'll have um, a couple and we're just going to kind of deep dive into the biography of the ace and then do an overview on the unit and the type of aircraft they flew. Absolutely. And it's cool because these aces have, um, you know, so many interesting stories to tell, but they're not all Air Force or Navy or Marines. It's very diverse it is, with yes. the branches, including the aircraft that they flew. Right. There's one that I, I think a lot of viewers will be like, he was flying a what? Yeah. Not to sound like a clickbait YouTuber, but literally it's... Might as well. Yeah, might as well. He was flying an aircraft that is not normally associated with the Americans. So... Uh, we'll let you guys guess on that one until we uh, eventually get there. But right. for the first episode, we wanted to talk about uh, arguably probably, I think, the most famous of them all. Yes. Yep. And that would be uh, Lawrence Elroy Bloomer, um, otherwise probably more famously known as uh, Scrappy Bloomer. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to get started here, kind of going through um, the story of the pilot, uh, his squadron that he was assigned to. And then at the end, um, if it's applicable, of course, um, if there are any warbird aircraft or uh, displays of their aircraft, either that existed at some point or um, are on display somewhere yep. or flying too, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, Sam, if you're ready, I'm ready. And yeah, let's dive into it. Cool. So as we mentioned earlier, uh, the first pilot today was born as Lawrence Elroy Bloomer on May 31st, 1917 in Walcott, North Dakota. Um Sam, do you know where Wolcott is? It's just a little southeast of Kindred. It is. Cool. So not okay. too far from here. So he was fairly local Very to local. this yeah. area. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I saw that his father was a storekeeper, and they moved quite a bit when he was young. Yep. Um, Between I, Fargo and some other areas. I saw Colfax, Fargo, and then obviously Kindred, which is... Yep. And Colfax is just along the, the rail there. Oh, cool. Between Very Kindred. cool. Yeah. And I know uh, many, for, or many Warburg listeners will know that Kindred is... Um, the home of Odegaard Wings. Yep. So that's you know a really cool connection there. And then I believe it was just, I think it was, it must have been his freshman year of college where his uh, family moved, pardon me for the terrible pronunciation of this town, Piletup. I have Somewhere no in Washington. Somewhere yeah. in Washington. <laughs> I, that's a good, good, good way to say it. Um, so while he lived out in Washington, that's where he learned to fly. And while he was out there also, uh, the Second World War broke out. So he had, you know, already learned how to fly a plane and, you know, the Army Air Force was looking for pilots. So in March 1942, he enlisted and the following March, he earned his wings and he was assigned to the 393rd Fighter Squadron of the 367th Fighter Group. Um, and interestingly, they were training with uh, P-39 Air Cobras. Yeah, they're they trying to transition to Mustangs. Is what yeah. I read. yeah, so they were, you know, kind of like those basic Mustang squadrons, like you learn on the P-39, you get to yep. Europe, you fly the Mustang, you know, bada bing, bada boom. Yep. Um, I mentioned earlier, uh, his nickname of Scrappy, uh, <laughs> probably one of the most interesting nicknames I've ever heard for a pilot. Um, the story goes that while his unit, um, the 393rd, was stationed in California for training, obviously California is a major hub for the Marine Corps. And uh, he was involved in a bar fight with two Marines and against uh, allegedly all odds, as we all know how tough Marines are, yep. um, he held his own against two of them. 
so he earned the nickname Scrappy from that. And as we uh, we dive more into his career flying with um, the Army Air Force during World War II, I feel like Scrappy kind of lives up to his namesake. Oh, yeah. Like the the kind of the situations that he got himself into and the the fight that he I think really, he liked being outnumbered. We'll I think he did. That. I think that gave him gave him a little bit of power, but. Uh, yeah. So um, I believe it was in March of 1944 when they arrived in Europe. Mm-hmm. And if I used a very refutable source, uh, Wikipedia, <laughs> to tell me that when they arrived at what, what was the name of the, the airfield? Uh, Stony Cross. Sorry, Sto- Stony, Stony Cross. Cross um, that there were P-38 lightnings yes. waiting on the runway and not P-51s that they had been told they were going to be flying. So I can imagine the the shock and a lot of those pilots faces probably some disappointment. Yeah. Probably some (laughs) disappointment. And like, how do we, like, I could imagine they probably whispered, like, we don't know how to fly these things. Like, right. What are we doing here? But yeah. Um, Training took a little extra time. time. Yeah. And then from there, I know they, uh, they, they, I believe their first introduction into combat. If I check my notes here. Um, would have been in uh, May of 1940, early May of 1944. And uh, obviously, if you're stationed in Europe in May of 1944, a little over a month, you're going to be seeing some serious A lot of anticipation. Yes. And they probably didn't know it or realize it at the time. But uh, in June of 1944, they really got busy. Yes. And they, I mean, they did routine fighter sweeps before that, for sure. But, you know. Definitely after uh, the big day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, they flew air interdiction missions against, um, you know, German armored patrols, Mm -hmm. armored columns, uh, troop movements, as well as, like you said, fighter sweeps, making sure that the Luftwaffe, you know, stayed back. And, you know, they were pretty well beaten at the time. Right. Air superiority tides started to change. And, you know, they ended up air superiority was everything they found out, you know, early on in the war mm-hmm. that you need that in order to support your ground troops. Yeah. That was the intent of the whole pre the warm up to the campaign, basically. Absolutely. Uh, so we should mention that his main mount or aircraft during these, um, these sweeps would have been P 38 that he nicknamed scrap iron. And he would go through four different iterations yep. of scrap iron <laughs> Um, I believe the first one was lost in a crash after a combat mission. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know the fate of the second one, but I think the third one, he got shot down and had to evade German patrols and search parties mm-hmm. and basically walked his way back to American lines. Right. Just, you know, it, it's it's almost for me, it's mind boggling how common you hear stories like that. And it didn't mention any aid or anything from the French resistance. So he navigated the French countryside behind enemy lines by himself. He just must add a rabbit's foot with him. Or must something. have. Yeah. Must have. <laughs> it's, it, it blows my mind. But the one aircraft that I believe everyone knows and loves is Scrap Iron 4. Mm-hmm. That was the, the final P-38 that he flew, um, arguably the most famous one. And uh, we'll be covering that at the end of this episode in the Warbird section. Um, but on August 25th, 1944, um, Bloomer earned the title of the fastest ace in a day. Um, they were doing a huge fighter sweep um, across the entire Normandy battlefield. 
and they attacked four different um, Luftwaffe bases, basically. And it was, you know, just an absolute, the quintessential dogfight. I right. don't think you can get any closer to the meaning of it. And in five, or excuse me, 15 minutes, Bloomer shot down five German planes. I believe the first two were within two minutes of each other. And, and they're then, all 190s, right? Yep, I yep. believe so. Um, that action alone earned him the Distinguished Flying Cross, yep. which is, you know, incredible to think. Like, <laughs> I, I can't even, like, what what is something that takes 15 minutes in, like, the, in the bathroom? Lives? Yes. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. After pizza, maybe not. <laughs> but no, just, like, next time you're sitting there, like, just maybe set a timer for 15 minutes and see what you get done. And then, you know, compare that to a guy right. in an airplane shooting down five other planes. And that for him probably felt a lot longer than the 15 the, oh, minutes, I can so. imagine it felt like it probably 15 hours. But very, so, very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So in 1944, or excuse me, in November of 1944, um, following Market Garden, um, just leading up to the Battle of the Bulge, I believe they were flying um, interdiction missions during mm-hmm. the Battle of the Hurricane Forest, which that alone has been, you know, that could take up a podcast oh, yeah, for episode. Sure. It's a shame that it's, you know, so underappreciated mm-hmm. in, you know, American history. But um, in November of 1944, he became the commanding officer of the 393rd Fighter Squadron and shot down his sixth and final aircraft on November 19th. And he ended his combat tour in January of 1945 and returned to the United States as an instructor, and he was eventually discharged from the Army Air Force in September of 1946. Um, post-war, Bloomer started a very successful construction company in Spokane, Washington, and it must have been really good for the guy because he made enough money to buy another p38 and not to mention operate <laughs> yes not just own or buy one but actually operate it himself uh we'll talk about that more at, again at the end of uh mm-hmm. at the end, end of this episode but now we're going to move into part two where we talk about um the squadron yep. that he was assigned to sam do you want to tell us a little bit about his squadron well the 393rd was part of the 367th which um uh, like you said, initially was equipped with 39 stateside in order to train. Uh, they're equipped with P-38J Lightning. So that's the J is famous or most known for having the the chin scoops, but it also had increased horsepower and increased performance based off of uh, basically a more improved, sophisticated turbocharger, which allowed for that boosted performance. And then they also had... Um, Increased fuel capacity, which, as you know, is very important, especially by that point in 1944, when they're starting to be stationed over in England, they're going deeper and deeper into Nazi-occupied territory. So they really needed something in addition to the Mustangs, because the Mustangs were still kind of in their infancy yeah. over in Europe at that point. Would it have been mostly like or B and C model Mustangs at that point? It would have been mostly B and C. Okay. The A's couldn't make it that altitude mm-hmm. with the Allison and without. And then yeah. I, I guess not to derail you, but at what point did like D models start becoming more common on the mid to late 44 were okay. even more. Gotcha. Yeah. Because like um, other books I've read and sources, you know, the B models were still used well into 44 for sure. Uh, you know, they started becoming hacks and stuff too, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, the J's were really effective. One of the more widely built models other than the L, which we'll touch on later, I suppose, 
uh, with uh, Scrappy's plane. And it also uh, had a couple other things as well, uh, bulletproof windshields for a little bit more uh, vitality for the pilot. Absolutely. And then uh, power boosted ailerons. Uh, so the P-38, uh, in the, it's a fast airplane, you know, 400 plus mile an hour airplane. Um, you probably remember this. Uh, so those of you listening probably have seen the show Dogfights, where you start to learn about what transonic speeds are because of Robin Olds. So basically in a dive, the P-38 was found to basically lock up its controls because if not to get too nerdy into aerodynamics here, but basically if you go fast enough, you start getting into this period between subsonic flying, like just, you know, flying around in Cessna type speeds and up basically it's transonics to different, like the very small window between that subsonic and supersonic speed. And basically there's a lot of unstable effects that wreck an airplane or mm-hmm. can derail the integrity of an airplane. So they were looking for ways to, you know, boost the control effectiveness of the airplane power boosted ailerons, you know, and they, you know, basically that could help it in a way. So absolutely. So sorry to get on the technical side of the 38 <laughs> there, but uh, yeah. And then later they moved on to 47s later yep. in the war and then uh, deactivated at the end. And absolutely. then um, the total group, numbers i got they flew over fourteen thousand sorties and had over 400 victory aerial victories and not to mention plenty and you of said CSs. that's between the entire group the fighter group yep gotcha i suppose you have a little bit more on the combat history of yeah. the 393rd yeah so the 393rd um was organized in july 1943 in california which was mm-hmm. very common actually it was at hamilton field which eventually became hamilton air force base yep um I did find, interestingly, some of the first pilots of the 393rd were actually former Flying Tigers. Yes, I did. So I I couldn't find specific names, but the fact that they had not just combat veterans that, you know, had the experience. Yeah, they they had some high profile experience. You know, they were volunteers over there. So the fact that they came on to actually serve their country, I thought that was really neat. Yep. They took the pay cut. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as we mentioned, uh, after training in the P-39 Air Cobras, uh, they left for Europe in March 1944. And after arrival in Europe, they flew their first combat mission against the Germans and the P-38s in early of May 1944. Uh, so I did find that on June 12th, 1944, so exactly six days yep. after the D-Day landings, um, the 393rd had their first aerial victory when uh, lieutenants James Pinkerton and James Mason, I guess James was a very common Battle name. of the James. Yeah. <laughs> uh, scored their first uh, shared kill against a Luftwaffe Messerschmitt ME-410 Hornets, or Hornet in English. Not a very common enemy there. No, no, actually not at all. Um, not to get off on a tangent, but those, like, Every, when we think about Luftwaffe fighter aircraft of World War II, you know, our minds instinctively go to BF-109s, FW-190s, you know, maybe ME-262s. But, you know, these aircraft that these guys were encountering, it could have been anywhere from maybe not Stukas in Normandy in 19. Not so much on the Western Front, no. But these heavy fighters that the Luftwaffe had, you know, ME-110s, JU-88s, my personal favorite yep. Luftwaffe plane, um, ME-410s, I think ME-210s. Two tanks were, were like, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, they were smaller, um, mm-hmm. smaller than the 410, but, you know, still packed a hell of a punch. Oh, yeah. Um, not, again, to derail, but I, I do remember hearing a story at the uh, Museum of Flight in Seattle 
from, uh, I, I pray that he's still alive, but it was a World War II veteran, a B-17 waist gunner. Hmm. And he was a docent there, and I spoke with him a little bit, and he was telling us a story about how he was, you know, fighting off, you know, smaller FW, FW-190s, BF-109s. And he said that it looked like a B-17 was coming at him. And he's like, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. And it flew over his, you know, just over ab- above the fuselage, like where the, uh, right on the B-17 where the, like, it kind of slo- slopes oh, down. The sh- yeah, the shark fin there. Yeah. Yep. He he said it, it was one of the biggest planes he's ever seen. And mm-hmm. it, like, just went right over him. And it was, I believe, a 410. 410, yeah. And, you know, I, I, people will argue about, you know, 410s and ME 110s or excuse me, BF 110s and, you know, how helpful were they really in the right. war effort? Like, could that have been used better yeah. in FW 190 production? I don't know, but I just think they're cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's all on how you fly it too. It's exactly, you know, everybody likes to say what planes better, but in the end of the day, it does really, bo- it the pilot, to pilot is the yeah. pilot. And yep, tactics in the pilot is yep. all on human. The human factor is not held in as much weight as your with your average <laughs> War Thunder player. Yes, and, you know. <laughs> we're coming at you, War Thunder <laughs> listeners. Um, so yeah, so yeah, basically on June twelfth, the three ninety third got their first aerial kill against an ME ten, uh, excuse me, ME four ten Hornet or mm-hmm. Hornet. Um, so the 393rd uh, would earn the Distinguished Unit Citation, which the squadron that became the 393rd still holds very mm-hmm. treasure today. We'll get to that. Um, on August 25th, 1944, so just a few days, if I remember, just a few days uh, before Bloomer's um, aerial victories, um, when they attacked uh, several, it was a very similar sweep to what Bloomer's mission was. They attacked... Um, uh, several Luftwaffe airfields and did an 800 mile um, fighter sweep of mm. the entire area. Like I, I would assume, would P-38s be capable of flying 800 with? They, they would. They would. They, they would could. probably throw yeah. drop tanks underneath. For gotcha. sure. Yeah. So um, eventually, post-war, the 393rd was deactivated, like many of those fighter squadrons yep. at the time, um, including I. We should go back to the 367th Fighter Group, which um, was the parent unit of the mm-hmm. 393rd um they it made up the dynamite gang which mm-hmm. is the 392nd fighter squadron <laughs> which if you read my book you would know that that is the north dakota air national guards 178th attack squadron now the 393rd became the 179th fighter squadron which is now the minnesota air national guard out of duluth and the 394th, unfortunately, never became anything. Right. They were the one unit that was part of the Dynamite Gang that was deactivated. Mm. So a bummer, but probably for the best that we didn't need them, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, the 393rd exists today as the 179th Fighter Squadron flying F-16Cs. I believe they're Block 50 um, Wild so. Weasel variant yeah. um, out of Duluth. So kind of cool to see that unit history existing today. Yep. Um, and so local. Yeah, absolutely. Very local. Um, a lot of those, you know, 393rd pilots, especially, you know, Scrappy was from mm-hmm. the upper Midwest, similar, maybe not super close to Duluth, but right. a lot closer to Duluth than they are in California. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> so now for our final section, we're going to be talking about um, the Warbird Survivor variant of the Ace Plane, if there is one. 
Um, for the first one, there actually is. Uh, there was a P39L um, Lightning, so a little bit later of a model. Um, serial number 444-26961 that was originally delivered almost directly to the, uh, excuse me, the Costa Rican Air Force in 1948. and only flew with them for about a year. They probably would have had part shortages, Something, troubles, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and then uh, circa 1951, it went to the Guatemalan Air Force, and allegedly it never flew. Hmm. Similar to the Air Museum's Corsair, it was a sor- parts source plane. Right. was picked completely clean. And then after that, it was sold to the Honduran Air Force, which kind of interesting. I know wasn't the soccer war. Was that? No, that was that El was, Salvador. Was, Excuse me. That was Honduras and El Salvador. Okay. In 1969, though. So Gotcha. Really so later on. Um, but our, the P-38L um, went to the Honduran Air Force in 1953 and actually saw quite the illustrious career with them, hmm. uh, serving from 1953 until 1960 when it was retired. And it came back and, you know, like a lot of warbirds that had been in the South American Air Force, it needed a little bit of restoration work, yep. but um, didn't take much. And it was actually uh, put on display at uh, now long defunct Air Museum in Ontario, Canada, still wearing its original Honduran Air Force markings, wow. which is pretty cool. Yeah. So um, something that you really don't see that much of no, you don't. these no. days, unfortunately. But um, of all people in 1969, uh, Scrappy Bloomer, the gentleman that this episode is dedicated to, uh, bought that P-38 and had it repainted in his wartime colors as Scrap Iron 4, which the original serial number for that was 44-23590. Um, so he flew that on the air show circuit for at least uh, four, excuse me, um, three years from 1969 to 1972. Um, I believe he re- raced it in Reno. Wow. One of the early years. Yeah, one yeah. of the early, early years, I believe, in either 71 or 72. Um, eventually sold it, and then it actually was a regular at Reno. Um, and it was owned by several different pilots until it was sold to a John Dahl or Deal um, out of, I believe, uh, Den- it was Denver, Colorado. And uh, very sadly, on April 9th, 1981, um, the P-38 that was marked as Scrap Iron Four crashed at uh, Salt Lake City International Airport in Utah, unfortunately taking the life of the pilot John Dahl with it. Um, I did see that the wreckage or whatever's left of the wreckage is owned by Planes of Fame. Oh, So who knows if they have that just on hand for parts Parts or if it's a long-term goal. I don't know, but according to some of the things that I read on the accident, there was not a whole lot left. No, can't imagine much. Very... Yeah, a bummer, but mm-hmm. yeah. So, but all at the end of the day, we can be thankful that you know generations well, of people got to see at least some version of it flying, even after. The- right, and the story with Warbirds is to spread the spread stories, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So it's just you know, in the end, of, in the end, it did that. So. And we were talking before we even started rolling. How we'd love to hear in your in the comments if you guys have any um, stories or insight, but. How common was it for a World War II ace that, you know, not maybe not even just an ace, a World War II pilot to make enough money to buy a version of their old aircraft and fly it on the air show circuit and in racing? Or just, you know, some of these World War II pilots, a lot of them weren't career pilots. Exactly. They 
hung it up after the war and never touched the plane yeah, again. And that was it. It's just, yeah. It's, so, it's crazy how common of a story that is. Yeah. So it just goes to show what, what Scrappy did, you know, it's just amazing just Absolutely. to be able to show people a piece of history. And mm-hmm. back when he owned it, it was still relatively fresh. World War II was no more than not even 30 years yeah, not old, even. over by that point. And now it's just, just imagine what that would look like today. Absolutely. That'd be amazing. Uh, we should mention that um, Larry passed away in October of 1977 um, due to leukemia, and he is actually buried in that uh, town in Washington that we could not pronounce yes. earlier. So if you live in Washington, uh, be sure to go out and visit his grave uh, during Memorial Day. Um, but other than that, I think that will cover it for our first ever North Dakota Aces episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Like I said, uh, we're hoping to do this. Maybe not every week. Uh, we'll provide updates. Or if, I know Sam, you're going on a pretty big trip. You want to talk briefly about that? Yeah. So I'll be uh, by the time this releases, I'll be hopefully <laughs> in, in Banff, Canada. So doing a little uh, hiking and stuff like that. So going to try to hit the military museum in in uh, Calgary. There, there's nice. a few uh, Canadian Air Force and Navy aircraft that I'm really excited to see and share with you guys. So. I'll, Get some pictures from up on the Instagram page. Um, I'm sure we'll we'll discuss it in an episode. We'll have at an some episode, point. absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So, so. Um, yeah, and then I I believe the episode after this one will be focused on another North Dakota. It will ace. be another ace. Yep, this and this time, one. Yeah, go ahead. This one will be on Francis Register. We'll just kind of throw it out Plug there it a little bit. Yeah. Yep. He's a he was an ace that uh, served in Guadalcanal, uh, most famously. Um, so we'll be touching on that, the campaigns, uh, he flew a wildcat, so we'll cover the wildcats. So pretty excited for that one. And I uh, hope you guys are too. And thank you for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks guys. See you next time.